you would open your Bibles to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. We'll read the whole psalm. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. To the choir master, according to Jedathun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Salah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Salah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Salah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Father, would you meet us wherever we are? Lord, would you let us know that we're your little flock, that you lead us by your hand. May we see Jesus. 
We pray it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for just over a year, we've been going through Exodus. We spent time in the backdrop of that in Genesis, seeing this whole story, creation, and devastating fall, and God's promise to restore and crush, finally crush evil and sin and bring life. We spent time with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph all the way down to the doorstep of Egypt and through that door we saw a strong Redeemer, mighty to save, leading His people by the hand through the wilderness, providing for them when they didn't know where they would get water or food. We saw Him meet with His people at Sinai, God giving the law and Uh, We saw sin and repentance. We saw the tabernacle and the priesthood and the presence of God leading His people. This whole time we've kept in mind that this is part of a larger story that God is writing. Through this story we've been pushed ahead to to see Jesus and, and our own salvation. Our own exodus. For the next month we're going to Take a look at the Psalms and see what they have to say to us. The the, the Psalms have a way to, like few other things, to invite us through the Word of God into all of what it means to be human. The Psalms reflect at various times on what God has done, and that's what we're going to look at. How how should we view this exodus? How, How should it play a role in our life as believers. We're invited into that through the Psalms. The Psalms apply the Exodus to real people in real situations with real hurts. They help give us a grid to understand our sufferings. Like few other things in our lives, the Psalms tell the truth. They tell the truth in poetry, offering a place for the brokenhearted to find expression for that brokenness. Before diving into the psalm, just a, a bit about the psalms themselves. There are actually five books there. It's the, it's the largest material uh, in the scriptures. It's a huge body of work. It's divided into several books. The first book, 1 to 41, is mostly personal in nature. Psalms of David, prayers of distress going up to God. Book 2, again, largely David, but includes some others, some Korah songs, and many of these have historic situations in view. Then we come to our book, 73 to 89. It includes Davidic psalms and psalms of Asaph. The tone here is darker. It's a great invitation. For those who are struggling... For those who wrestle deeply with depression, 
with anxiety, with broken hearts, with broken situations around you. This is an incredible book for you. It's a gift. It gives language and expression to those things. Biblical language and expression to deep brokenness. Book four stands in answer to book three. Beginning uh, psalm there is Psalm 90, the the psalm of, of Moses. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's a beautiful answer. And then book five concludes 107 to 150 in praise, including the Hallelujah Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, the recognition that God has answered prayer. The whole, uh, the whole of the Psalms really tells this story. Look at the heading of our psalm to the choir master. According to Jedithun, a psalm of Asaph. Psalm is constructed for the choir master. These things are to be taken up in song. This is a song book. It's to be sung. Anger, sadness, Hope, joy, triumph, defeat, loneliness, depression, anxiety, fear for sin that we've committed, sorrow for sin committed against us, longing for hope, longing for truth, longing for change, hiding from enemies and hiding from friends. All of it is found beautifully in this songbook. Asaph, choir master, a right-hand man in, in worship with David, but also this name marks out a whole family. Around the time of David, Asaph produced songs, lyrics, and music for the, the singing and, and worship of God, his praise in the temple, but also his family is known for doing the same thing. Like there's a whole line of Asaph committed to music. Committed to song. Now into the psalm itself. Remember and moan. Does God remember? Remember and worship. The opening of the psalm is, With my voice to God I cried out. With my voice to God I cried out. And he heard. The Psalms are interesting because they rhyme not so much words as ideas. They rhyme ideas. They rhyme thoughts. They layer to to provide emphasis and instruction. The Psalm here opens with a cry going to God. A deep longing. This longing is powerful and intense. I cry in the day of trouble. My soul refuses to be comforted. I moan and my spirit faints. We aren't told the circumstances of this cry. 
Only that it goes out to God with a feeling of desperation. Have you ever done that? Have you ever cried out to God in sheer desperation? Does that feel inappropriate to you? It shouldn't. It shouldn't feel inappropriate. The psalmist, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is crying out to God. It's highly appropriate for the brokenhearted, for the hurting, for the one who's downtrodden, the one who has so many questions weighing on their heart, they don't know what to do. It's utterly appropriate to turn your cry heavenward, to cry out to the Lord. This cry was from astonishment, fear, helplessness, desire. And again, we aren't told uh, the, the situation of uh, exactly why he's doing, it, doing this. And I, I think that's really a gift to us today. Any number of reasons could bring us here. Any number of life circumstances or situations can land us right here. We aren't told. We don't know. What reasons would we have to cry out to God? Maybe it's not as intense as crying out, but you have longings in your heart. Hopes. Desires. Prayer going up. Crying out to God for a loved one. A situation that you have no control over. Calling out for help in relationships. Maybe you can't even define why it is you want to cry out. Maybe you can't wrap your own mind around the desperation that you feel. What is it for you? What does this look like in your life right now? What's the desperate cry of your heart? What's a pleading that's in there? What does it look like to know that God hears your cry? Notice that the psalmist is taking his trouble to God. He's looking to the Lord and not to other things in his pain. How common is it for us to to numb out this kind of pain? To ignore it. To deny it. Not only to God, but to brothers and sisters in Christ. To pretend. I love the Psalms because they, they they don't do an end around on the brokenness of life. They don't look at terrible situations and say, hey, we're just going to go around here and pretend these things aren't true. No, they plunge headlong into the fray, into the mix, and they say, this is terrible. Do we run to the Lord? Do we cry out to Him? Is that the first tendency of our heart when things go terribly wrong? 
Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. In this introduction, the, the psalmist is directing us to God, but in this memory, he finds no real resolution. In this first immediate memory, whatever situation he's in, he said, I remember and I moan. It's a really interesting word. It means to, to murmur, to growl, to roar, to be boisterous, to moan. This cry is being expressed to God and, and he's got nothing. I remember God and, and I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And then he goes further. So his moan, his memory, and then he, he's looking at God and saying, Do you remember? Look at all these questions. Verse 4 tells us that whatever situation this is, it runs deep. He can't sleep. He can't speak. He's frozen. Everything probably looks okay on the outside. He's probably still going to work. He's probably still going through his normal routine. You might look at this guy and say, man, he, he's fine. He's doing good. All these areas of his life, they're fine. And inside, he's being crushed. Thoughts, fears, clouds, anxieties, emotions come rolling in and he's frozen. When he should be sleeping at night, his eyes are wide open. Again, one reason that the Psalms are so useful is they express the depth of human emotion in ways that help make sense of life. This is not my opinion about fear and depression and anxiety. This is God's Word. I cry out, I moan. It's hard to think of... Uh, those in the Bible who don't in some form or fashion deal with intense brokenness. From the very beginning, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve. Through the fall, a ripped relationship with God, a ripped relationship with one another, a ripped relationship with creation itself. And from there, you see time and time again, Job had everything stripped from him. And lies in ashes in lament before God. Abraham forced to reckon with the reality that he was willing to risk his, his wife for his own safety. Jacob, every step he took after wrestling with God was a reminder to him of his frailty and who God is. Moses, hugely self-aware, hugely aware of his own inadequacy and his dependence on God. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, told to us in the prophet that he, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, despaired for life itself. 
Throughout church history, we we know men and women who've struggled greatly. St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin. All struggled deeply with who they are. Anxiety. Depression. Charles Spurgeon said, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. Elizabeth Elliot, missionary and wife of Jim, quote, we look for some light. We look for some help. We strain our ears for some word from the mount of God. A whisper will do. But we get only dead silence, blank, nothing. Please let us have some recognizable attestation of what you have said in your book. David Brainerd, missionary. My spiritual conflicts today were unspeakably dreadful, heavier than the mountains and the overflowing floods. I seemed enclosed, as it were, in hell itself. I was deprived of all sense of God, even the being of a God. And that was my misery. Child of God, people of grace, don't ever feel alone. Don't ever feel alone in your desperation, in your pain, in your hurts. Hear the psalmist talk about these very same things. Know that this exists on a long line throughout church history. Pain, hurt, devastation, questions. Verses 5 and 6 tell us where the psalmist is going. In the days of old and the years long ago refer to earlier times. When it seemed the condition of God's people was better provokes the question, did God use up all that favor? Hey, I remember a time, and this is common, I remember a time when you're depressed, I remember a better time. I remember a season when I wasn't like this. But is God done with that? Is He done treating me in that way? All the questions come, will the Lord spurn forever and never again show me favor? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? The deep darkness here goes to this fundamental question, is God good? Is He good? Can he be trusted? These are big questions. Has God stopped loving me? Has God stopped being gracious? God introduced himself as the one who shows steadfast love for thousands of generations of those who love him. Has that gone away? Is God no longer committed to his promises. 
When it comes to doubts and questions like this, there's a, a great quote. This is Alexander McLaren. Listen to this. Doubts are better put in plain speech than lying diffused, like poisonous mist in the heart. A thought of being good or bad can be dealt with when it is made articulate. Look, take these intangible thoughts and put words on them. That's what the psalmist is doing. Put words on your doubts. Invite others in with you. Let the Lord know what your doubts are. He can take it. Let others in with you. Let them pray with you. Let them walk beside you. That's who we are as the people of God. Again, a huge value of the Psalms. God in the Psalms has given us a heavenly vocabulary to deal with all sorts of emotions. Lastly, we see, we see this turn, this shift from him remembering and moaning to, hey, does God remember? And, and lastly, he, he starts remembering truth. He, he gets anchored again here in 10 to 20. Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. His right hand at work. I will appeal to this. I remember that God has worked. God has done great things. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then you know what he does? He goes on to remember the Exodus. This is way later. Way after. All those people are dead and gone. And as he's writing this psalm, he says, I'm going to remember what you did when you brought your people out. He turns his attention to who God is and what he's done. His appeal goes from, is God good, to an appeal to the character of the Most High God. I will remember God. I will remember who He is, and I will remind my heart of what He has done. What a crucial lesson for those of us who doubt, who struggle, who wrestle. The memories in sleepless nights have given way to memories of the reality of God's character. You will have times when what you know to be true about God will be more powerful than what you feel about God. There will be times in your life when what you know to be true about God, who He is and what He has done in the person and work of Christ, will dominate the way you feel about God. This is a crucial lesson why do we hammer again and again and again with our children, with our own hearts, the gospel to them, the gospel to ourselves? Why again and again and again? Because when everything falls apart and it feels like the floor has fallen out from under us and we're just in free-floating mode, we remember what's true. We remember that God loves us. We remember that He gave His only begotten Son. 
to come and die for us, the likes of us. We remember that Jesus conquered death and glorious resurrection and that we have hope in Him. Hope that transcends our current circumstance. The psalmist begins by turning his gaze from himself, his situation, to to who God is and what he's done. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. What does theology do in our heart? We're good Presbyterians. We're good at theology. We, we know a lot of stuff. What does it do? What is it good for? For us to know that God is holy. For us to know that He's righteous. For us to know all these good legal terms about God. Does it have any play on our hearts when, when we're broken? When we look around and we see everything else is unholy, do we remember that God is holy and good? and righteous, and loving. What is the character of God doing within us? Is, does that shape us? Does that shape our heart, not just our mind? Are the truths about who God is the static reality in our brain? Or, or is it drilled down into who we are as people? The psalmist with a broken heart says, I remember that God is holy. Who is like Him? None. There's none like Him. What does theology do in your heart? I love what Derek Kidner says about uh, his meditation on these verses. He says this about holiness. Holy in such a context is a formidable word. Conveying the aspect of God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light, fearful as an enemy, but gracious as a friend. Does the character of God shape you? Does it change you? Or is it some static reality? Yeah, God's holy. Isn't it great? We have a holy... We can know all the, the terms and all of that that go with it and it has no bearing on our heart. Oh, the psalmist is saying this is real to him. He's looking for something to, to, to fuel him, to give life and expression to him again. He's looking for a way to go to sleep. And one of the answers to that question is God is holy. From here the psalmist launches deeply into who God is, a God like no other, a God who works wonders that no other can work, a God who hasn't remained distant but has worked openly and in front of people, a God who's accompanied uh, and accomplished redemption for his people. The psalmist's mind is taken from the grand picture of who God is to a specific instance of God's grace. And it goes from individual to corporate. He looks, he looks at the situation and he sees, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. God comes to His people and He takes His people by the hand. He's thinking about what happened 
as God led His people across the Red Sea. The water saw God and it feared and He says it trembled. The water saw God coming in power and glory and it shook. The terrible storm was aroused by God. The psalmist hears the thunder in his mind and sees the flashes of lightning as arrows coming from God, defending his tiny little flock, walking them by the hand through water as a soldier and a shepherd. The whole earth is shaking. The psalmist is in wonder about the exodus. These are not cold and distant realities in his heart. He said, here's where I'm going in tremendous pain and tremendous suffering. I'm remembering that God is a redeeming God. I'm remembering the greatness of God. When the winds of life threatened him, this writer, he finds shelter in the character of God. Where is our safety? Where is our security? Where do we go in the storms of life? Our New Testament reading from Romans 8 sets these two truths side by side. All creation groans. If you're here today and you can't fully relate with this psalmist, Romans 8 says something is true of all creation. That there's a part of every one of us in this room that knows that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. As parts of God's created order, we are groaning with all of creation, saying this is not right. Out here, what's going on is not right. And in here, what's going on is not right. All creation together groans. That means you, and that means me. And that's side by side with this reality that creation will be set free in Christ. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is in Christ. What is the answer to the groaning of all creation? It's that Christ has conquered and that Christ is coming again. We all suffer. We all face trial. But the question is, what are we going to do with it? Will we remember what's true? Will we tell our hearts, here is truth? Will we remember the love of God in Christ? Will we remember our own exodus? Will it not be some cold and distant reality, not in our hearts, some truth that exists over here, but the gospel made tangible, the gospel true in here? Christ faced darkness. He faced it. For us, in our place, as our good shepherd, again a man of sorrows acquainted with Grief, the light came into the darkness. The darkness couldn't comprehend it. They rejected the light, put him to death. Then he conquers death in glorious resurrection, giving hope 
hope to you and me. Tangible hope. Again, is that a cold and distant reality in your life? Or is there light and heat in the gospel in you? Jesus had many words for weary and downtrodden people in the face of all the weariness of this world. He boldly announced, come to me all who labor and are weary and heavy laden. Jesus says, hey, come to me with all that weight of who you are and find rest. That's a tangible answer to, is God good? Yes, Christ has come. Christ has come. Remember your exodus. Remember that you've been brought out of bondage to sin and death by Christ. When things are dark and you moan and cry out on sleepless nights, hear Jesus say, come to me, you weary child, and find rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you so much for the Psalms. Thank you that in the midst of devastation of this psalmist that he remembered. Lord, may we do that. In the midst of the groanings that join together with the whole creation, may we remember Christ. And there find hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.